Welcome to See Things Differently, a podcast from Remix Summits in collaboration with our series partner, the UK government and Time Out. I'm your host, Peter Tullen, and your guide to the future of the creative economy. This podcast is for creatives who want to be creative entrepreneurs. It's both for those that want to build something from scratch or who might want to reshape something that already exists. The creative industries generate over $2 trillion annually globally. It's big business and it's part of the broader global creative economy. As you will see in the episodes that follow, we have entered the age of the creator. Over the last few years, thousands of delegates to remix events in creative cities such as London, New York, Sydney and Istanbul have gathered to hear from the visionaries behind emerging creative powerhouses such as Meow Wolf, Punch Drunk, Secret Cinema and Team Lab, alongside established players such as Glastonbury, Burning Man and MoMA, which continue to evolve. Creative entrepreneurs are driving whole new industries, such as immersive entertainment, by taking advantage of shifts in the experience economy to build immersive worlds that have captivated millions of people. Others, such as creative technologists and a new generation of creators, are shaping the future of storytelling or unlocking the potential of emergent technologies such as NFTs or virtual augmented or mixed reality. They have driven the content revolutions and creators will be central to the metaverse, which the likes of Mark Zuckerberg are predicting will be the next evolution of the internet. And see things differently, we will share the stories of these pioneers who are building the creative economy. I believe creative entrepreneurs could offer some of the answers to how we can build back better from the global pandemic. They're not only using their creativity to build new forms of creative experiences, but to pay the bills, and in some cases, develop highly scalable creative enterprises that are creating large numbers of new jobs. See Things Differently will dig into the stories of these creative entrepreneurs to understand their motivations and how they turn their ideas into reality. Along the way, we will share insights and lessons from their journeys, exploring opportunities in growth sectors such as the experience economy and creative tech. Plus, as the United Nations has declared 2021 as the International Year of the Creative Economy for Sustainable Development, that's quite a mouthful, but I believe it's code for let's celebrate the creative entrepreneurs. Finally, if you like what you hear, there are literally hundreds more talks from Remix events around the globe at remixsummits.com. And better still, many of them are entirely free, just like this podcast. If, after 18 months of being stuck to a screen that isn't floating your boat and you're ready to get back to more of that in-person stuff we used to do, then Remix Summits explores the intersection of culture, technology and entrepreneurship and our next event takes place in Sydney, Australia on March the 8th to the 9th. Digital tickets available if that isn't in your neck of the woods. Now, without further ado, on to our guest today. Louis Hartshorn is an example of a new breed of creative entrepreneurs operating today who are blending their creative talents with business skills to build new creative experiences for audiences and fast-growing creative companies. He has produced theatre shows including the Olivier Award-winning Rotterdam, the Grammy and Olivier Award-nominated Amelie the Musical. He also programmes the Arts Theatre in London, which is currently home to the smash hit and global phenomenon Six the Musical. 
He also has a strong background in the hospitality sector, which is evident in his work, creating venues such as the Lucky Club in Mayfair. He's also making waves in the fast-growing immersive entertainment sector as joint CEO of Immersive Everywhere, which is where our chat will focus today. They have produced an immersive version of The Great Gatsby, which is now the UK's longest-running immersive production. Their most recent production, Doctor Who Time Fracture, is on an even grander scale. Partnering with the BBC, they have developed 17 different Doctor Who story worlds for the audience to experience across the show. The success of this model has seen them enter conversations with other holders of major IP to develop the world's leading immersive productions that will be announced in due course. In 2019, he founded Immersive London, a permanent specialist immersive theatre and event venue in central London, which is home to both of these shows. And as you will hear, they have even bigger plans with a further venue launching shortly. You can also check out the video interview of this podcast at remixsummits.com, where there are also some trailers and images of the shows that give you a great sense of the story worlds that Louis and his team create. Fantastic uh, that you can join us and uh, welcome to See Things Differently. And I'd just like to start by going uh, perhaps further back to the uh, the beginning and, and to understand like where it began for you, some of your influences and what led you down that path to becoming a creative entrepreneur and then particularly um, leaning into that sort of immersive world. Well, I've always been interested in um, entertainment and hospitality. I think when I was younger, seeing performances and being enthralled, but realising it was more than just the individual performances and even more than creative direction of a piece that there kind of had to be a, a puppet master or who created this magic out of nothing like who uh, thought of or, or found an idea and made it happen from scratch that felt like really magic to me um, and I've, I've always been thrilled by hospitality and to me the theatre and the immersive theatrical stuff that we do is part of that it's, it's the process of welcoming people in giving them an experience that thrills or enriches them uh, and, and seeing them smile or be moved and um, you know welcoming people into an environment. Um, I've also never been any good at being told what to do so uh, <laughs> when I was when I left school I, I got a job while I was working out how to you know found a company and how to start creating my own experiences uh, and I met my business partner while I was working at the Manchester Palace Theatre on uh, Manchester International Festival's Monkey Journey to the West and found he had a similar ambition and we've had a great time working it all out together. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and it's interesting that that combination between creative you know, interests and uh, that more sort of business side of things is often unusual to find that, that you know, those two things together. Um, so it's kind of interesting as, as a background. Yeah, I, I always found like the, the, the business side of things was, uh, was as much a part of the creative process as what people would normally think of, you know, the, of the artistic process. But actually, when you come up with an idea and you're trying to work out whether it's feasible, you're looking at, you know, potential capacities, potential prices, the experience that people have if something's full or if something's less full and different types of experience, you know, it, it, sitting in an empty house, in an empty theatre, I mean, uh, loses the buzz, whereas when it's full, you get that kind of rush and momentum. So the interaction between the way that audiences perceive something, uh, and, you know, it's the same with a bar or a restaurant, you sit somewhere empty and you're not getting the same thrill as you do if, it, if it's jam-packed and that energy. 
and so designing businesses where the uh, all of those business aspects feed into the, the, the ultimate experience that the consumer has, that feels like just as much a part of the key creative outcome as, you know, designing the menu or writing the script. Mm. And it was, it was interesting you mentioned, um, you know, Monkey Journey to the West as well. And we, we, um, we had a Alex Poots speak at um, Remix a few years ago. I th- he did some really pioneering work at the Manchester International Festival. And, and I know for him, it was very much about that fusion of, of different art forms. He was very kind of multidisciplinary in his thinking. And is that something which has also influenced you in terms of the path that you've taken? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, uh, we've not learn from anybody in particular there's no course that we've done so there's never been any rules and for us if we can cross disciplines um then it, it's almost like the, the boundaries between those disciplines weren't drawn for us in the first place uh one of the things that i've enjoyed doing the most recently is working with um my good friend uh, musician gregory batsler we've taken uh, handles uh, we've, we've done handle remix taking handles music and uh, and, and rescoring it with electronica, and essentially bringing uh, soundscapes that weren't available when Handel wrote the music, but which he might have chosen to use had they been. And but it brings it into a soundscape that makes it, you know, really relevant and exciting for a younger audience, and just plays with the form. And for us, that process is is utterly joyous. But there's no reason it shouldn't be done. Yeah, and it's interesting. You, you talked about audiences there, and, you, and, you, and we'll maybe get a bit more into this 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 later. But it, it feels like you know maybe this is partly with your entrepreneurial hat on that focus on audiences and where they're going, um, and and also it seems that they're embracing these these different combinations of, of art and getting much more experiential and what they want. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that for a long time audiences actually haven't had. Uh, haven't had that much choice because form has been quite strict Um, and the more kind of genre defying stuff there is the more we learn what people really want to do one of the things that we have found with the immersive stuff that we create is that we are a thing to do as much as a show to see so people might choose between you know going to uh, some crazy golf uh, experience in London versus going to Gatsby, rather than choosing between going to the West End or going to Gatsby. We, it, it means that we have absolutely got access to both, and if there's a, a, an audience who, who don't think of themselves as traditional theatre-goers, they might still be really interested in coming to the experiences that we create. That gives us access to a huge range of, of people, and means that we're, in a way, doing audience development for theatre by being one foot in both camps. Mm, yeah, really interesting. Uh, look, you mentioned Gatsby there, and, and it felt like obviously that was a kind of breakthrough moment for you, and that show's been phenomenally successful. Uh, you know, it's now, from what I understand, the longest-running immersive show in, in the UK, and, and perhaps you could um, tell us a bit about um, the Great Gatsby immersive experience for the uninitiated. Yeah, of course. Um, so essentially we have a, a, a two-and-a-bit-hour a performance of the Great Gatsby story, but it happens in a way where the audience come as the guests. So when you arrive, you arrive into Gatsby's party, it's spectacular, there's dancing, some people will teach you to do the Charleston if you want to, you can have a drink, glass of champagne, hear some music, and you're, you're, you're part of the story, you're, you're there and you're meeting the characters and you can talk to them, they'll talk to you back. 
um, it, it's as, uh, as immersive and as free form as we can make it. And then the story unfolds and, you know, of course the story is, is a tragedy with a beautiful story arc and, um, you know, th through that process, as you draw to the end of it, it's a little bit more like you're watching a play because the, uh, the guests have less of a part to play as the, uh, as the narrative arc kind of reaches its climax. So it moves into a very beautiful theatrical experience and then at the end there's an opportunity for, um, for everybody to, to decompress, have a drink and, and, and talk about what they've seen. But it essentially, it's something that people love to go to as a group because you're socialising while you're at it. Yeah, wow. Um, uh, it doesn't sound like a hard sell at all. Um, I can see, I can see why audiences have, have fallen in love with that one. And I'm, in, I'm interested. Um, you know, when you sort of embarked on that. I mean, you know, so it's been the longest running show, and obviously, as, as we know, in the, the UK, there've been a few pioneers um, in that immersive space. Um, and I'm thinking through the, the kind of timelines here. Was it was it was it something that you needed to give audiences much education around? Did it did it immediately sort of resonate with, with the moments where you thought it could fail? You know, taking a big risk like that because I mean, you look back now in hindsight and you go longest running show, you know, wildly successful. But I, I guess when you take a chance and do these things, it isn't always certain, is it? Of course. I mean, the first performance of Gatsby played to seven people, and we knew all seven. <laughs> um, you know, it takes. <laughs> Time. Well, at least they could give you an honest opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. And, but actually, you know, it, it's uh, part of the reason that we did it is because it's a good sell. People know that they know the story, they want to attend Gatsby's party. That's something that everybody would love to have been a part of. But I think the particular thing about this choice is we're always looking for the best way to tell a story. Um, we produce traditional theatre too, you know, we have Amelie in, in the West End at the moment and it's a great way to present certain types of work, things that, you know, are beautifully crafted and can't be interfered with, but sometimes the best way to tell a story is with the audience at the heart of it, uh, you know, as active participants. And everybody wants to have been at Gatsby's parties, the best way to see this great story is up close and personal as a guest and you're feeling those highs and lows for yourself. Um, when, uh, when I was chatting with my dad when I was younger, he always used to say, everyone wants to be in the band. You know, the, the experience that people have when they're part of something elevates it so much more than just watching. And so for stories, there are some stories that really beg that. And Gatsby is definitely one of them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, certainly for me, the, the appeal of immersive is, is feeling like you're, you're part of that world and it's an active participation, isn't it? Yeah, which yeah. Is, is a really exciting part of that particular art form. Um, now, I thought it was really interesting that, um, you know, you went down the road of, of developing your own um, immersive venue, Immersive London, to, to hold, you know, hold some of these, these shows. Now, um, you know, there's been some interesting examples you know when I think back to my my 10 years in London and going to places like Shunt and some of those mm -hmm. venues that that housed you know um you know immersive forms but I think you know a lot of those um other organizations in those days are very much colonizing you know found spaces when I think about you know the likes of Punch Drunk or Secret Cinema shows so I, I found it fascinating that you you know you took a chance and, and you, you you obviously decided that you needed a kind of permanent um venue for this and I wondered what was behind that thinking from your side, how that how that's played out in terms of your entrepreneurial journey running a venue. But also, do you think this is 
actually a way of the future? Do you think more cities, places need to think about developing these types of new cultural infrastructure than perhaps more traditional spaces? Yeah, absolutely they will. I, it's our job as entrepreneurs to find ways to take the form further uh, to provide resources and opportunities and, and uh, you know, also make it easier for audiences to access it. And you know, it, some people may think of it as boring, but infrastructure costs cost a huge amount of money uh, it needs a huge amount of skill, and when you think of the uh, prospect of taking on a building, planning, planning law, licensing, air handling, heating, cooling, fire, electrical, plumbing, compliance, like the list is endless, and shows that are using found spaces can spend more money on infrastructure than they do on the art. And mm. I'm also afraid to say some, in some instances, people cut corners out of either lack of knowledge or, or lack of funds. So if we can create spaces where the infrastructure is there, then theatre makers can focus on the art. And that includes ourselves when we self-produce our shows. If we've got infrastructure and we can put one show in after another or share a space between two shows as we have done with, uh, with Gatsby and Doctor Who, uh, which, are, which are separate worlds but housed in the same physical building, um, then we're able to pour, pour more resources into creating the, the creative experience. Um, and. Uh, I, I have a background in programming in a West End theatre. I, I program at the Arts Theatre um, in London, and uh, it, it makes a huge amount of sense from an entrepreneurial point of view to create spaces that then you know you, you, you've capitalised, uh, you, you've created an asset, and then you're able to to keep using that asset, and, and over time, effectively, you're adding value and adding uh, efficiency to the creative process. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it was fascinating. I was um, interviewing the other day one of the founders of Shunt, and of course, they had that space for a, a period of time, and then there was that big redevelopment of London yeah. Bridge Station, and you know they were kind of moved on, like a, a number of tenants in those those railway arches. Yeah. I know I thought there was a real irony there. You know, you fast forward sort of 10, 15 years later, and you look at the huge challenges that the high streets having. And actually, the irony was the creatives probably had the right business model um, all those years ago, but actually they were the first people to be kind of kicked out. So having that that sort of permanence and, and taking a long term, you know, bet obviously on I guess on your your, your creative business is um, yeah is really interesting in, in the context of some of those sort of sort of historical tales. So um, yeah, I think it very much could be the, the way of the future. Um, so sort of fast fast forwarding again, I guess you know into your your most recent show. Um, so you know, big big news that was announced last year is that you've teamed up with the uh, the BBC. Um, you're you're now um, you know one of the guardians of a really iconic UK brand, uh, Doctor Who, and and you've produced this this new immersive world and experience. Um, um, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about that show? It appears that you've taken obviously a further step up in in scale. It's a really interesting collaboration with the BBC. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Perhaps what some of the initial uh, reactions been to the, the show as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, everything about working on Doctor Who has been a privilege. Um, we we have an amazing creative team uh, led by Tom Maller, Rebecca Brower, and and Daniel Dingsdale, who are. Um, director, designer and, and writer um, who have poured their hearts into making this beautiful, beautiful show. Um, there are 17 worlds that the audience can travel through um, as, as part of the experience um, and the detail that has gone into the physical production is honestly astounding. But I think that comes from working on such an incredible brand. 
it's a delight working in such a rich world. The fans are amazing. And I think the thing that probably epitomizes it for me is that we knew as soon as we started working on it that we would be able to be, uh, we'd be able to do things in such detail and it would be appreciated. So there's a conversation between us creating these Easter eggs that can be discovered and fans who really want to find them. Um, at the same time as I was making a show that somebody who's never seen an episode of Doctor Who could come and understand and enjoy the whole narrative from start to finish, which is equally important. But, but a great example is we released coordinates uh, piece by piece in our three opening video trailers before we officially launched. And within an hour of releasing the final clue to the coordinates, we had people outside our building posting in forums that they'd found the site where the show was going to take place. <laughs> it's an absolute truth. Wow. Um, and working with the BBC has been fantastic. They're, they're writers and, and producers who are on our show team who've absolutely backed us as part of the canon. Um, so uh, I, I can't say too much, but there is one character who appears in our show who will later appear in, uh, in some other part of the Doctor Who canon. So it's really woven together as part of the story. Yeah, that's 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 fascinating. Uh, yeah, that commitment to, to, to detail, and and you can see that actually. Even uh, I noticed that you know even on Google Maps, you know that the buildings listed as you know Unit HQ, so yeah. that um, you know you're stepping into that world even before you um you arrive at the venue, which is is great. Um, and and so, so it's interesting. You're 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 now working obviously with organisations like the BBC, and, and again, if I think about other um. You know examples in the space. You've got you know Secret Cinema partnered with obviously Netflix recently. They worked with with Disney again, bringing alive the, the Star Wars universe. And it, for you, is this a, a sort of pathway that you can see uh, you're doing more of? Um, is this also something which could lead into sort of international opportunities as well? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we are partnering with all of the great studios. Um, brilliant content is key to our model. Um, we will create brand new work from scratch from time to time, but working on existing rich worlds that are loved is part of what's really exciting for us. And, and that really has great interplay, particularly with the immersive form, because there's a massive thrill and desire for people to get closer to things that they already know. If you've had a, you know, if you've fallen in love with a particular story on screen, and then you have a chance to step into that world that is richly, richly rewarding and, and kind of echoes what I was saying about the way that the Doctor Who fans have been able to interact with our show. Um, and yeah, the BBC are one of the great studios, so we're one of our first ports of call, but we're working with uh, you know all of the major Hollywood studios and uh, brand owners. We've got a whole slew of titles which over lockdown we've been developing. Uh, so there'll be more announcements coming soon. Yeah, okay, that's, that's really exciting. Um... So uh, it's funny, actually, just as you were talking, another thing that, that sort of cropped into, into my mind is, um, you know, as you say, you're, you're creating this, this full universe, you're creating context around things for fans, you're allowing them to, to step into, in, in, into those, those sort of story worlds. And I, I wondered, what, what do you think this means for the rest of the cultural sector? You know, if I think about, um, you know, galleries or museums, it's often about objects that are totally actually out of context, you know, in that environment, as opposed to, you know, what you're doing, which is a very different approach. It's um, sometimes that's realism about entirely fictional worlds, but um, you're, you're providing a very, um, a more complete experience in some ways in terms of stepping in, into a space, into an environment, potentially into a moment in history, whatever, whatever that might be. And I've wondered if you, if you thought about how 
you know, organisations like yours could collaborate with other parts of the cultural sector and, and maybe, you know, one plus one equals three in this scenario, you know? I mean, yeah, uh, when, when we were talking before about the, uh, the lines between different art forms that, that, you know, we don't really see those divides, um, if, if we can create a, uh, a dining experience that includes opera or if we can create something that's electronica and a light show, all of those things for, for us are ways of trying to enhance people's experiences. And I think we have moved relatively recently culturally from a kind of materialistic uh, society to everybody looking for things to, to do and things to experience and, and ways of, um, you know, experiencing things that they haven't felt before. So it's a, it's a, the time is ripe for the immersive sector to be developing and uh, artistic kind of cross collaborations are really exciting. Um, there's also a great thrill in uh, speaking to an organisation who are really, really specialist in what they do and then having a chance to work with them to develop something new. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I think you're absolutely right. And, and that trend, I think, is very pronounced with certain audiences, particularly like uh, millennials, Gen Z. And I think I saw some research where, you know, two thirds of them would, would much rather now buy an experience and a, um, you know, desirable product, for example. So I think I think that's only going to be more pronounced, isn't it, yeah, um, as a result absolutely. of the pandemic. And if, and if you were thinking about going into this space, um, you know, whether it's another type of cultural organisation or creative startup, I mean, if there are two or three ingredients um, without giving away all of your, your kind of magic that you think makes just a great immersive experience, what, what would they be? I think that the first question we ask ourselves is why is the uh, audience or the participant there? Um, we would try to avoid making... Uh, making an immersive experience where there isn't a reason for them to be there kind of narratively. Mm. Um, the opportunity to be in a world rather than observe it is, you know, the thing that people go for. But that means that giving them some kind of agency is vital. So wherever possible, we have the audience making choices that affect the outcome of the story. Um, we have that, that, that means that they're fully integrated rather than just pretending that they are immersed and actually, you know, maybe that's just like watching something on a screen but in 360. We're, at, we're trying to make sure that they have interplay with the story and that their choices affect the outcome of what happens. And um, there are certain ways where, for example, you know, the end of Gatsby is always going to be the same, but there are nuances of the character's journeys that are affected by whether or not audience members choose to pass on a certain message from one character to another or elements of the script that change depending on which outfit the audience choose for Daisy to wear when she goes to tea with Gatsby. So we're always trying to find those things which, which you know, create proper interplay. Um, and I think, I think that is a key to uh, immersive experiences. And you know, there's a whole host of different styles. Immersive at the moment is probably an overused word because it's covering so many different types of experience. But we, um, we also, of course, just have to come back to the quality of the creative team that are working on it. And I think that you know, when, when you're going to have people up close and personal with a set, the physical production element is extremely important. So if you go to one of our sets and you open a drawer, you'll find handwritten notes that are dated as if they're letters from one character to another. And there's no reason that we would point you to, to find those. But if you do explore, then you, you get them. And that's, that's the other key for us, is rewarding people who want to play the game. So if somebody comes in and they're full of excitement and want to get stuck in, they will get out what they put in. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's great. 
And, and, and then, you know, that's slightly more on the, the creative side. And I'm, I'm intrigued to almost sort of ask the same question around you as a creative entrepreneur. Like, what are the, um, the factors or the lessons that you think allow the development of a, of a sustainable or even a scalable, you know, creative enterprise, the likes of which you've created? Were there key moments, key um, ingredients, lessons that you would draw out there? That's, you know, these are the things that you should be thinking about. Uh, well, I think... I think the lesson that I would share um, doesn't necessarily apply only to creative entrepreneurship, but the only thing that every single successful entrepreneur shares is that they haven't given up. Like, never, mm. never give up. Failures are lessons and opportunities. Um, my favourite example, um, favourite seems like a strange word to use for this story, but uh, when we were, um, Brian and I were 22 years old, we got sued um, by a group of companies, including Universal Pictures, because of a mistake that we had made with some intellectual property. Um, at the time, I thought it was the end of the world. Um, mm. You know, we ended up with legal fees and we were really tied up in, in, in what felt like a disaster. Uh, I mean, what was probably a disaster at the time, but we ended up becoming friends with the estate. Uh, who owned the IP because we were in touch with them so much during the lawsuit and we actually ended up working on that show for seven years because we developed such a good bond with them and that became the inspiration that that episode became the inspiration for me to go and do a part-time law degree um, which which I did with the Open University while I was running the company and now those legal skills drive our business and I have on honestly believe that if we hadn't gone through that challenging moment that we wouldn't be where we are now um you know the the lesson is to always see the opportunities uh wow that's that's incredible yeah it's really um yeah turning a um as you say a pretty dramatic situation to your your advantage and and it sounds like having being prepared to sort of learn the legal side that the detailers obviously sounds like it's really important in your, your journey as well um you know it's not just the creative thinking and the, and the you know the big bold ideas Absolutely. The, the, the interplay between business and creativity, again, it's a place where I don't really see, uh, I don't really see a line between those two things. And, you know, there, there is, there's no use in terms of being a leader, there's no use in only understanding the business side of it and not understanding that the experience that you create for the audience uh, is actually the reason that, you know, the numbers can stack up in the first place. But likewise, if you can only see the art, you can't make something that's sustainable. You can't make something where people have job security. And so the, the, the interplay between those two things is exactly where I try to place myself as an entrepreneur. Yeah, and, and then sort of, um, you, you talked a little bit about um, the, you know, the, that really strong connection between what you've created and the audience. And I'm interested in that, I guess that other side of, of business is how you build a creative brand and how you build a community around what you're doing, or multiple communities, I guess, because you've got different um, projects and, and, and shows. And could you talk a bit more about how you've done that, how you've built the audience for, for what you've done and how you've developed a brand that hopefully can go in lots of different directions now, I guess, you know? Of course, yeah. I mean, we're an interesting um, example here because we really have lots of micro brands in the individual productions. Um, we produced uh, Rotterdam which, which won uh, an Olivier Award in 2016 and then we took it to Los Angeles where it, it, it actually um, won the LA Drama Critics Circle Award, uh, Best Production Award, jointly with Hamilton which was a, a kind of 
uh, jaw-dropping moment. Yeah. And um, that show has its own audience who might have no interest in Gatsby and Doctor Who. And so what we have had to really focus on is making sure that each one of our productions has a really, really well-managed and well-defined brand and not try to amalgamate them in a way which, which would um, lessen the interest uh, of, of, of audiences. But the place where that does differ have, is, is in the, uh, the immersive sector where there are people who love immersive work and might be more interested in seeing uh, a show because it's immersive than a show because it's a particular title. So uh, Immersive Everywhere sets out to create a kind of um, an umbrella brand for the type of work that we make. And you'll know that if you're coming to an Immersive Everywhere show, that you're going to get that level of quality, the attention to detail, the beautiful scenic work, the narrative storytelling, and the agency of the audience that I was talking about just before. You'll get that gameplay element where you're rewarded for, for, for wanting to be involved. Um, so we're, we're you know, building that kind of brand and that kind of community, but also it's, it is just really important that, that we look at that brand uh, development on, on those two levels and pay attention to that rather than just hoping that it's going to be one amalgamated group of people who like everything that we put on. I just want to take a few moments to talk about our latest remix collaborator, the UK government, who are the series partner for See Things Differently. To celebrate this link-up, over the next few episodes, we will be exploring the stories of a number of high-profile UK-based innovators, and we have some truly incredible guests lined up who definitely represent the best of Britain. I'm also excited uh, about this collaboration because the first ever Remix Summit took place in the UK in London back in 2014. 300 creatives gathered from sectors such as the arts and technology at Bloomberg's European headquarters in the heart of the city to explore the future of the creative industries, creative cities and the creative economy. Remix was designed to be a platform that would bring together creative thinkers from different industries to connect and develop new ideas. I believe that one way to spark innovation comes from the meeting of diverse minds. I think of these melting pots as the new collision economy. They create an environment where you can see things differently. The collision effect is most powerful in locations where there is a large creative ecosystem and talent base in countries such as the UK. The UK has a strong history of innovation and actually has a good case for being the first collision economy in the modern era. This is where the historian in me gets to run wild. One of our inspirations for Remix was the Enlightenment era coffee houses that sprung up in their hundreds around London. They imported a sludge-like liquid that passed as coffee back in those days over from Turkey. Sadly, the flat white was but a glint in the eye. It has been described as the rocket fuel of the Enlightenment, as the coffee houses attracted adverse patronage of artists, merchants, scientists, politicians and others who congregated there to share news and ideas. Debate and discussion ignited new thinking that led to inventions that shaped the modern world in which we live today. You can trace insurance markets and the London Stock Exchange back to those coffee houses. Sir Isaac Newton even dissected a dolphin on the table of a coffee house, which is not something one expects to come across in your local Starbucks these days. 
If you want to find out more about this, I would recommend checking out Dr. Matthew Green's Time Traveler's Guide to London, published by Penguin. A few years ago, Matthew created an immersive version of the coffee house uh, for Remix delegates to help us explore the big issues of the day, which is still one of my favorite Remix moments. Fast forward to the 21st century, and the spirit of this innovation continues in the UK. For example, did you know that the UK is ranked number four in the world in the Global Innovation Index? There are over 100 tech unicorns, that's companies with a valuation of over a billion dollars in the UK, uh, which was the third country to pass this milestone. It also ranks number three in terms of venture capital investment globally. I can say from direct personal experience as a UK founded business, which has expanded to Australia and operates in other parts of the world with events in locations such as New York and Istanbul and elsewhere, that we have benefited from support from the UK government and its partner organisations in a number of ways, such as being part of trade missions, having access to expert trade advisors and market intelligence. We developed Dreamix as a platform to support and profile creative entrepreneurs around the world. So it's great to work with the team at the Department of International Trade in Australia who are helping other aspiring entrepreneurs in the UK. Like them, we believe great innovation has no borders. If you're a business or an entrepreneur interested in UK-Australia collaboration, whether you're an Australian business looking to set up in the UK or a UK business looking to expand to Australia or other international locations, then visit www.great.gov.uk forward slash remix to find out more. I also wanted to say a quick thank you to our media partner, Timeout, who are also helping us to get out the word far and wide about see things differently. They're another iconic UK business which helps people all over the world to uncover the best of their cities. Many creatives and cultural organisations around the world have had a rough couple of years now and Time Out like Remix have a shared mission to profile the innovators who are building the new experience economy. In Melbourne and Sydney, we recently collaborated with Time Out Australia on an amazing project they have developed called Future Shapers, which profiles incredible people changing these cities for the better in areas such as the arts, civics, sustainability, food and drink and community. Over 50 change makers were selected by the judges and the Time Out team interviewed each and every one of them. One that really inspired me was Girl Geek Academy, an organisation providing programmes that teach women and girls skills in technology, everything from how to code uh, and build websites to 3D printing and animation. Another was Alan Crabb, the co-founder of crowdfunding platform Possible, as well as Birchall, his latest project to grow crowd equity in Australia. Collectively, these platforms have raised over $100 million for projects and new businesses across Australia and shows the power of building something with your community. To read all about the Sydney Future Shapers, go to www.timeout.com forward slash Sydney forward slash future dash shapers. And for the Melbourne Future Shapers, visit www.timeout.com forward slash Melbourne forward slash future dash shapers. Now back to the show. You talked about immersive, immersive there as, as a category, you know, I guess in, it, in its own right. And, you know, 
yes, there's been a slight pause because of the pandemic, but it strikes me, uh, you know, the boom that was starting to happen before is going to come, you know, right back. And there's, you know, there's some huge investments in this area. It seems that there's countless, you know, new things opening up across what's a really kind of diverse space, you know, some big announcements in places like the US about experiential art galleries, immersive projection spaces, you know, you name it, um, you know, um, more and more kind of, um, you know, brand names that are kind of rising up, you know, the Team Labs, the Meow Wolves of this world as well. Look, how, how big do you think this space can, can get and um, uh, how do you see it developing and evolving o- over the next few years? Will it keep, uh, keep just growing or? Yeah, I mean, I honestly think it's in its infancy. Um, we have seen a tremendous increase uh, and it's been a very exciting time for the sector. Um, but actually, I think that makers are only just starting to understand what they've got and, and what they're doing. You know, the, the early pioneers, and I think there's credit due to, to Punch Drunk and, and others, um, who at the time had to do a huge amount of audience development work because people had never heard mm. of this stuff. But actually, even then, it's a relatively small slice of the potential audience who, who would engage with that. And right now we're seeing the um, democratisation of, of immersive experiences and people are starting to perceive them more as attractions, things that anybody might want to go to. And I was saying before about the, the, uh, the way that uh, I used Gatsby as the example, but most of our work straddles somewhere between theatre and, and, and something to do with, you know, uh, as, a, as an evening out with your friends. Actually, that broadens the audience. And as people start to understand the, the, the potential, the various different experiences that there are, it will continue to grow and grow. Um, so I, I do think that um, audience behaviour is just going to, you know, get more and more interactive. And um, the at some point relatively soon, we're going to need to have different language to describe different branches of immersive work, because not everybody will like everything that describes itself as immersive. But um, at the moment, it's such a kind of uh, a buzzword that loads of different brands and, and, and types of experiences and forms of tagging it on to their, uh, to their marketing. Um, so I think that we have a bit of a job to do of helping to direct audience towards the types of experience that they'll enjoy. Um, and in return, we will end up with that boom continuing to grow really, really rapidly. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and you're right, there's a lot of new um, entrants into this space, shall we say, that are throwing this word around, including you know, big corporations, you know, the likes of you know, Netflix building immersive teams, you know, Disney trying to make this happen on a daily basis through its theme parks and things like, you know, Galaxy's Edge and the hotels that are, that are, that are attached to it. Um, you know, even people like Airbnb, you know, if you think about the experience economy more broadly with Airbnb experiences, like everybody wants a, a piece of this space in different ways. And, you know, when big tech a, a, arrive, you know, they've kind of, they've measured a market and that they've identified an opportunity, um, you know, clearly. And I wonder how, you said earlier on that actually you don't necessarily look at others in terms of, of how you shape your own destiny or, or ideas, but how do you kind of keep up with, with trends or ahead of trends or create trends? Well, I, I think that in my role as an entrepreneur rather than as a creative, um, the, the establishment of the resources, we're talking about you know, Immersive London, the venue that we've opened, uh, we're on the cusp of announcing another one in London, um, we hope that we will do the same in New York before too long. And I think that creating, um, creating environments where the best immersive makers can collaborate with us and create those experiences 
is going to be part of, uh, of what pushes the genre forward. So it, it, it's less for me about how do we keep up, it's about how do we innovate, and in any direction, mm. um, we get very, very excited about ideas and about creating something from nothing. You know, I said right at the beginning of this that the thing that attracted me to becoming a producer was that you can have an idea from scratch and then, you know, a number of months later, you're welcoming people in to, to experience that idea that, you know, at one point had never been articulated. So for us, uh, we were gonna we're gonna push in every direction, but I have to I have to build the infrastructure to make that sustainable, to be able to market it, to be able to drive people to it, and for the, the, the different specialist skills to be able to collaborate with each other. I see that as my role in terms of, of, of how we push the form forward. Yeah, yeah, great. And you, and you talked a bit about um, c collaborators and finding those collaborators as well and creative partners. And, you know, one of the things I guess that's shaping this space is, you know, the, the emergence of, you know, new technologies and um, that are, seem that there's a possibility of opening up new frontiers in, in this space. And how, how do you think these technologies could shape future possibilities? In so many different ways. I mean, uh, sorry, massive question. Yeah, you, just give me the future, I, I future think, of technology in a sentence. You know, <laughs> I think that one of the obvious ones is, is people looking at types of virtual reality, augmented reality, and mm. so forth. Um, when we look at certain types of brand, particularly things that are in the world of fantasy or sci-fi, uh, you want to be able to create an experience where somebody is up close with something that they might never be able to see otherwise, and you know, for all of the uh, for all of the skill that exists there in terms of you know mechanical recreations of, of um, uh, let's take for example dinosaurs. There've been some pretty good examples of, of um, people using mechanical uh, methods to, to recreate them. But up close and personal, they don't really they don't quite get there. And I think that if you want to be able to show somebody a journey. Uh, in, in a non-naturalistic way, if people want to be able to fly or to move from space to space, from move to location to location, you might be able to use augmented reality mixed in with live actors and narrative to create something that you know is truly breathtaking. But it's a challenge because those things are very, very expensive and it's about trying to find a way there when, when they are then accessible enough in terms of price. And mm. so I, I, I do think that there's a very difficult balance in introducing that type of tech. Um, but it's, it's inevitable that it will happen. It's just, is that next year, is it five years, is it 10 years before those things become, in, to become able to be integrated in a really smooth way? Um, we're not interested at all in having an experience where somebody you know, is, is, in a, is in a live environment with actors, then they sit down and put on some goggles. And at that point, they go through a different... That, to us, just breaks the world. That's not what we're there to mm. do. We want everything to be smooth and we want it to be, uh, to be seamless. So when we get to, um, you know, when we get to having 3D holographic projections and that that can be dropped in and people might not even notice that that's what they were seeing and it takes their breath away, that's when we get really excited. Yeah, yeah, I, th I, th I think you're right. I think, look, y y you're totally right. There's a convergence of technology with performance and, and, and other areas potentially, but I think creating seamless worlds and knowing when to leap on these things is as important, isn't it? I think there's also, um, the, the, the other part of it is where technology kind of in the background is really helping to enhance the, um, the way that audiences engage with the types of, uh, of work that we make. Because at the moment, we're able to start the 
storytelling from the moment that somebody first lands on the website thinking about buying a ticket. And rather than have that kind of cold uh, ticket agent uh, portal that somebody buys and then you know your experience starts once you're through the door and your ticket's been checked, for us, you're landing there um, using Gatsby again as the example, you, your ticket is a letter from Gatsby and we're able to mm. engage with people as early on as possible so that the whole thing, they're immersed from start to finish and then we're able to drop Easter eggs after they've visited. You know, we can send up a follow-up email or a follow-up text that has a, an Easter egg for the people and stops it from just, you know, being so black and white. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, well, look, that, that neatly leads me into my next question because I was just thinking about um, how joyous it would have been to have received a letter from Gatsby in the midst of the uh, the pandemic. And um, uh, and I'm kind of interested in both your experience during um, COVID and how you reacted to that obviously radically um, you know changed world and that, that physical disconnect from your audiences. But as we emerge from the pandemic, I'm really interested in what you think the opportunities are for creatives and creative entrepreneurs. And you know we've started to delve into you know changes into the high street working patterns, you know buildings that, that may become available. I'd, I'd just love to get your take on all of that. Absolutely. It's a tale of, of opportunities and threats. Um, we are, of course, at the moment, uh, hugely down on tourism, and that is a huge threat to the work that we're making. And, you know, talking very much about the now and the challenges of right now, we obviously have uh, ongoing obligations. We have buildings that we have contracts on. And if we don't present work, then, um, you know, we're spending money on rental without any revenue and that's, that would jeopardise the organisation. So we do have to present work, but we're doing that without a large part of the potential audience who would normally be coming to it. So there's a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation which we've had to carefully manage. And I'm glad to say we have, you know, we've managed to navigate those commercial challenges just, but it's been an extremely difficult process. Um, the thing that was hardest for us was uh, great amounts of uncertainty over how long we could be open and un under what regulations. Um, because of the uh, compelling uh, business reasons that I was just explaining about needing to generate revenue, we said, well, <clears throat> we will try to be the flagship, we will try to do the learning that the industry needs to do in order to be able to reopen. So when we were given green light uh, at the end of last year, October last year, to reopen theatre in a socially distanced way, um, we presented Gatsby, but we'd completely restructured it so that uh, the audience sat in bubbles, so that the mm. the cast never went within a metre of each other, and the show was so beautifully directed and choreographed so that the audience wouldn't notice that. Um, and it was really deftly done, beautifully rehearsed, at great care and expense, and then four weeks later we were shut down again. And Going through that process was, was extremely, extremely difficult and, and of course, you know, the, the, the list of things that people were talking about at the time that we need certainty, we need some way of dealing with insurance, we need, you know, to be able to run our businesses and I think that um, lots of organisations were forced to shut down, were forced to lose all of their staff, um, but we have also tried to see the opportunities. Um, while our existing projects were greatly threatened, it created opportunities for new projects. The market for real estate, because of the state of the high street, has become really interesting. And I think that a lot of retail disappearing is giving rise to more experiential things appearing. So we tried to offset those risks and the losses and the damage with <clears throat> pursuing the opportunities that were there. And um, to a degree, I would say that that strategy has paid off. 
we have been able to get hold of some real estate, which we're really excited about announcing soon, and, and, and some mm. pieces of IP that tie into that. Uh, and we've also found that a great amount of talent was available in the market because of the way that the, the um, jobs market was, and we have bolstered our team by investing in some excellent talent now based on what we ought to be able to generate as revenue in the future. Um, so it, it's definitely been a, a double-edged sword, um, but we have been just trying to look at the long game, and as, as I said before, it's, it's any kind of failure is a lesson, and always see the opportunity, and that's what we have tried to do. Yeah, and that, and that that seems to be also what I'm hearing elsewhere. You know, real estate being the the the, the big sort of shift as well, hasn't it? You know, I know in the the US, you know, former retail parks becoming experience parks or second tier department stores disappearing from malls, and you know, what do you fill those those spaces with? And actually, you've got this really dynamic um, new economy that that that's bubbling up. And yeah. and I guess that that leads me on to I guess the question last couple really in terms of like what the future holds. So it sounds like, um, you know, a, a second venue, hugely excited, appreciate there's the limits to probably what you can say about that. You've talked about, you you know, you've, you've obviously started to do things on, on the international stage, but it also seems there's a bit of a, a kind of rush, isn't there? You know, there's, there are, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, your organizations like your Team Labs or your Atelier de Limiers are rapidly sort of, you know, spreading their footprint around the, the world. And is there space for... For everybody, is, 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 is that something that you aspire to do in the same way? Absolutely, yeah. There, there's, there's way more space than anybody might think in this, in this sector. Um, and we find it helpful if our friends at Secret Cinema and Punch Drunk and, and, um, and, and the other London-based organisations are opening shows in New York. That's a good thing for us. Um, it, it's part of the education uh, of, to audiences of what can be achieved that traditional theatre is not the only option, that people who might go you know, out for dinner as their main thing actually might really enjoy coming to one of these experiences, that that, that education being done is something that takes years. And, um, and, and we don't really believe in cannibalisation of audiences. We, we believe that it all drives interest and um, makes, the, makes the form of the work that we're doing more accessible. Um, mm. Our work is intended to be global. Uh, we, we have already presented Gatsby in a few different territories in, in Belgium and in Korea and we have deals in quite a few other places that are um, just pending things reopening from COVID that, that would have been open by now uh, on uh, multiple uh, different continents and the same thing applies for Doctor Who and for the other shows in our pipeline where we're doing global deals and looking at which markets might be most interested in those um, and we have fantastic international partners uh, in, in different territories who we love working with that's part of the joy of working is is you know genuinely feeling a bond with the people that you're working with internationally and and starting to make it feel like um you know the the all of the different uh, features that different places in the world have different cultures become something that you can get access to yourself that you know it's it it can be a lifestyle business as well as be driven by the by the commercial and creative aims yeah fascinating and you talked about this being you know still an embryonic industry and uh, i'm interested you know as a you know as an entrepreneur myself who raised vc funding you know uh, over 10 years ago for a, a you know very um early concept of selling art online which most people thought were kind of crazy um in those those days of, of the web 
you know when you when you when you're sort of building something new it's often hard to you know finance that or raise the investment to to fuel the growth that you know is is there and uh, do you feel investors are starting to get this space i know some of the you know the us um, immersive companies have been able to raise some pretty big dollars particularly from property developers that realize you know some of the trends that you you've, you've outlined is how's the investment climate around this um it's a really interesting question actually um uh, you know, 15 years of producing and uh, God knows what percentage of my time I've spent fighting to raise investments in small chunks of 10, 10 grand a pop, you know, to try and fund a, a, a multi-million pound production. And, and um, that trail of raising funds has always been a huge drain on our time. Uh, but you identify very correctly that the interest in this immersive sphere and the um, compelling commercial arguments around it mean that raising investment uh, in this particular way has, has become easier. Um, we in Immersive Everywhere have taken, uh, taken an investment in the company in general, which is bolstering our pursuit of, uh, of the world's best pieces of IP and the best senior management staff. Um, so that's been a really exciting uh, moment to, to start that kind of Series A, Series B type process where most of our creative companies wouldn't go through that. And yep, um, yep. in terms of funding the productions, we're increasingly finding that investors will write a check for the entire thing or for 50%. And that is saving huge amounts of my time, allowing mm. me to focus more on the business. So I think absolutely, investors have cottoned on. Uh, and you can see it happening with, uh, with the live experience um, departments of major companies like Netflix, um, that, that this area is going to be you know, it's, it's, it's going to be greatly expanding in the years to come. Yeah, look, and I think that leads me into my final question, really. And, and the, the first series of See Things Differently, we're working with the um, the UK government. And um, in terms of that that climate, that that environment, and I, I'm sort of wondering how operating in a, you know, a major global creative capital like London within the context of the UK, which has obviously got a very renowned you know, creative industries ecosystem, has that made a difference to your, your journey? It makes an unbelievable difference. Um, London is an inspiration. Uh, the, the, the quality of work, the West End, which I'm you know, deeply involved in and, and love, um, and you know my, my interest in immersive doesn't in any way diminish the inspiration that I get from the traditional theatre scene. Uh, the level of talent that is around as a result of that means that we really are working with the best in the world. Um, and I think that uh, while New York and London may sometimes vie for top spot when it comes to the West End and Broadway, in the immersive sector I think the UK is widely regarded as being the strongest. So as well as talent, we have uh, international respect. We have this soft power export, which um, enhances the UK's reputation. And that is a kind of virtuous circle. It means that international partners really want to work with us. Uh, it means that investment comes from the UK, uh, comes to the UK from the US and, and other places. And if people are interested in taking one of our productions maybe to their territory later, that they would be interested in, in putting in some seed funding to develop it in the UK. Um, mm. So that, that is all hugely, hugely beneficial, combined with the fact that the uh, theatre tax relief system that has been implemented here means that there is a, a, a bit of assistance in getting shows to uh, up and running here. And that, in turn, means that international partners think of London as the right place to start shows, and it drives funding to here. So we really, 
it's a symbiotic relationship. You know, the, the, the reason that London is so highly regarded is because of its output, but the output is mm. being boosted by that reputation. And uh, I have to say, it's a huge part of, of the success of our business. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know when, um, you know, I was working on my startup all those years ago, and it was, a, it was a, t- a tech business with a kind of creative product, you know, you know selling art from... Um, galleries uh, around the world, and and it was that that fusion of, of what was well, I guess what was interesting was the UK was, at that time was really the whole Silicon Roundabout thing was kicking off. You had all these startups that were, um, you know, sort of flooding in, into the capital. Um, you know, that were, were accessing things like the enterprise investment scheme. You, you could really see that sort of snowball was was gathering pace as it went down the hill. And it was fascinating. I mean, it was part of the reason we set up Remix was to make connections between the entrepreneurs, those innovation companies, and then obviously the innovators in in, in the creative space and 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 i also thought you know i found that those networks in london that were very kind of multidisciplinary the ability to get to meet people from different worlds and that those those networks and connections is that something that's at the heart of your business as well yeah absolutely i and i i think you know that there is because we don't see boundaries in the work that we do we're trying to to um take inspiration from from lots of different industries there are, um, you know, you, you mentioned the the kind of fundraising EIS type type setups, and there's various yeah. different structures that are designed to support different industries. As we've got more and more into hospitality, and, and we have um, we have a restaurant and, and a cocktail bar, and uh, that kind of came organically from the fact that we were running high quality F and B operations in our uh, in our entertainment ventures. Um, but yeah. we've started to understand the ecosystem in, in the UK that supports that side of the industry as well. And I think, um, you know, London is a hotbed for creativity in that world where, for example, in the restaurant world, you're being, you know, the, the world's best chefs and the incredible quality of the food scene in London is driving that forward. And that is completely interconnected with the, um, with the underlying structures for businesses that, that, uh, that enable investment to take place and enable risks to be taken. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, well, look, that's the end of my formal list of, of questions. Um, I mean, it's absolutely incredible what you've, you've achieved and it's, it's really exciting still, obviously, the journey that you, you've got ahead of you. You know, you really are um, you know, the crest of the wave in terms of, the, of, the, of that, that particular trend and, and space. And is there anything else that um, you want to say that we've not covered that um, you know, might be interesting for the, the, the audience? Yeah, I... I think um, one of the most important things in entrepreneurship is the way that, that you treat people. Um, and myself and Brian, um, Brian Hook, my business partner, have, have always um, relied on something which, uh, an offhand comment from my dad once upon a time, uh, he said, rule everything with kindness. When we were having a bit of a hard time, uh, we weren't sure what to do, we had a difficult decision ahead, and he just said, rule everything with kindness. And we've lived by that as a mantra ever since. The interactions that we have with our team, it's all about how can we support, how can they enjoy their work. Um, We never want to be uh, bean counters, penny pinchers, we want to be enablers. And thinking of management structures as as upside down, you know, the pyramid with the manager at the top is is not how we see it. That pyramid should be upside down. The senior managers in traditional business speak are the people who should be supporting and enabling the other people who, who are creating work and, and um, delivering product to do their jobs as well as they can. And seeing it the other way around and saying it's not that I'm in control of those people, it's that I am there to enable them to do their job and there to enable them to be happy. 
uh, has been absolutely critical to the way that we've run our business. And you know, as a result, we have found that we've got a really great team with smiles on their faces and really good staff retention. Um, so I, I, I would just say that in entrepreneurship, people should consider that as a, as a really important factor. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as always, you know, parents know best. Uh, they're, the, they're the secret shareholders that always have the uh, uh, the advice that cuts through. So, um, look, thanks so much for your time, um, Louis, and, and best of luck with your uh, your future endeavours. Um, yeah, and, and look forward to obviously hearing the news about the uh, the new venue. And um, uh, you've definitely made me a homesick uh, Brit tonight, so I'm looking forward to getting back to London as soon as they. Uh, you know, open up the Australian borders and, and getting to see, you know, Doctor Who and, and, and Gatsby. So thanks very much for, for joining us. Thanks ever so much. So thanks for staying with us. And that's a wrap for this episode. Another great guest will follow in our next edition. I'm Peter Tullen. And if you like what you hear, there are literally hundreds more talks from Remix events all around the globe at remixsummits.com. And as mentioned, many of them are free. If you want to support Remix, then you can subscribe to access all of our latest and upcoming talks from Remix events. And if you're in Australia, our next Remix Summit takes place in Sydney on the 8th to 9th of March. Thanks for joining us.